0: All right. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you. Thank you, worship team, for getting us started. Love, uh, that's such a great way to begin the week, is it not? It's such a good way. We, you know, we go through the whole week getting messages thrown at us that are complete opposite of the truth that God has for us. So to come and and start off our Sunday and be reminded and singing truths and being told of these the truths in scripture and who we really are in Christ and what he's done for us. uh, That's just a great way to start and it's so fun to start it with you. So I'm glad to have you all with us here this morning. Uh, You know, here at Stika, my name's Ryan, by the way. If you're a guest, so good to have you with us. Uh, It's my privilege to serve here as the lead pastor. Um, One of the things that we uh, are committed to here as a church is that We want to be a place that people discover life in Christ. So if you're a guest with us here today, maybe you're searching in your faith, maybe you've wandered away, Uh, we're so glad that you're here, and our prayer for you today is that you may encounter Jesus and find what that life means for you in this stage of life. And we're committed to that here. That's why we're so committed to loving our city and investing in this community. Um, But we also are committed to that same truth to the ends of the earth. And so we support several missionaries around the world because we believe that people all of the world. If, if this is a truth that changes us, we want others to be transformed by it. And uh, we have uh, Kim and uh, Greg Verbeth are visiting. Come on up. They are some of our missionaries in uh, Europe. They're living in France. So let's welcome them up here this morning. I need to stand up here while I have this family uh, <laughs> So it's great to have them there. I'm uh, currently living and serving in France. And one thing I love, uh, you, you know, we, sometimes we think of Europe, and we think, well, why do they need missionaries? You know, missionaries, you, we send missionaries to Africa. We send, you know, places like that. Uh, but, you know, Europe is considered a post-Christian nation where there's a, a history of Christianity, but it's not really a part of the culture anymore. So I love that you have answered the call and you're serving there. So just share a little bit about what's going on and,
1: right, yeah. great. Well, we definitely want to give glory to God and thanks to the church for um, this. Is, we're going on five years now over in Lyon, France, and just so thankful for the ministry that God is doing there. I mean, that's, uh, we're excited. God gave us a passion for the international community, and that's really what we work for. We, we live in France, but we really work with internationals. So we've been, uh, 25 years ago, God gave us a passion for the expat international uh, community. And so we're still working among there. Greg, you want to tell us some things that we're doing in
2: France? Yeah, we. um, um where do we start? Students and. Got a couple yeah, yeah, we. Um, our focus is uh, on the international community because God has opened this incredible window for us for people that either uh, English is their first language or their second language, or third or fourth or fifth language. So um, within Lyon, there are about 120,000 international students there. And uh, so we have a church that is a safe community for them to come in, other than a bar scene or whatever. And uh, so we do a lot of focus events on creating that uh, safe community for them to be involved in. And naturally, we take every opportunity to share the greatest gift. I hope that's the greatest gift. <laughs> <Yeah>. There, yes. <laughs> okay. This is Ryan's talk. I kind of poked into there anyway, um, and share the gospel with them and. We see many of these students and uh, expats that are there from other companies and such come to Christ. And it's just an incredible, awesome opportunity and a partnership that we have with you here at the church. Uh, Through your prayers and financial support, it enables us to be there and share the gospel with these people. And along with what we're doing in France, um, we are the field reps for um, our ministry. And so we travel the world and see what God's doing. Throughout the world and it's incredible. You know, when we started out thirty years ago in New York City with crew with executive ministries in, in Manhattan, I remember at a Bible study, it was a kind of a newcomer's Bible study. A gal asked me, you know, what well you know, what about the people that live like in the Amazon? What, <clears throat> those that never hear the gospel? Well, I've been to the Amazon and I've been to places where the gospel is being preached and people are coming to Christ. And God is doing incredible things throughout the world. In France, um, the the French church, they don't need missionaries coming anymore because over the 50 years or so where missionaries have been planting seeds into the lives of the French and Germans and people in Holland, the churches are growing It's incredible to see what's happening. So we have this window in France where we are reaching those who are French and from Mongolia or wherever in the world uh, to share the gospel with them.
1: And just a a quick story that we've been praying the last year. Um, to baptize somebody it's just been kind of our goal of our team there we were just like oh we just love to baptize you know some of these new um, believers and um, it's it's interesting we we really pastor a parade our students leave within six months to a year to okay. two years. So, I mean, even our international, um, you know, people that are working actually just are there a short time. So um, this last year, we got two emails from people that had just left and went back to their home churches and were baptized. <laughs> okay, we didn't get you baptized. You yeah, just credit. Just put it, put it you know, on your record. Exactly. <laughs>
0: That's great. Well, we're, we're really excited to have you here visiting with us uh, this weekend and, and uh, to have you. And, and we're just excited to support you in the work that you're doing. And, and you know, God doesn't call us all to go overseas, um, but sometimes he calls some. And we uh, certainly appreciate your heart and your willingness to do it for so many years. And uh, we, so let's pray for them as, they, uh, as we send them back to France this week, right? Yes. Okay. God, we thank you so much for Greg and for Kim. I thank you for their whole family. We thank you for uh, the call that you've given on their lives to make your name known throughout the ends of the earth. And Lord, so we pray blessings on their travel. We pray blessings as they go back. And God, I pray that the church um, in France and the international church uh, would continue to grow as more and more discover life in you. And so we pray that you would empower them. You'd fill them with your spirit as you go. Lord, and uh, we just thank you, and we pray for some great baptisms this year, (laughs) and we, we ask that in faith, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, thank you. Let's give him a hand. All right, well, we are in a series called Dear Church. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And, as uh, Greg alluded to, he said, "Is this we want to share the greatest gift?" And really, this chapter talks about what is the greatest gift. And so, as we get into First Corinthians chapter 13, just a reminder uh, this book that we've been studying through called uh, First Corinthians was a letter written to a group of Christians who were pretty new in their faith in a culture very much like ours, where it was an educated, progressive culture, there was a lot of uh, wealth, there was a lot of success, uh, but there was a lot of diversity too, socioeconomic diversity, there was diversity uh, of ethnicity and just backgrounds, all of that, and so they kind of all came together, and they're trying to figure out what does faith look like now in our new context. It also was a very spiritual town. Uh, spiritual, and so they were trying to figure out how do we now take all these practices in this world that we're living in, and what does the life of Christ lived out among us look like in this culture? So that's what we've been looking at, and today we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Now this is probably one of the most uh, popular uh, passages in all of Scripture. In fact, I would uh, I bet that many people inside and outside the church have some of these verses or at least portions of them memorized, whether they believe or not. Uh, we hear this chapter recited at uh, many weddings. Uh, perhaps you've seen it. Maybe you have it uh, as a kind of scripture up on your walls in your house. It is a very common. Thing uh, or passage that is well known, and some people even call this the love chapter. And, and I was thinking of this love chapter, and I was looking this week and thinking, well, how do how do we define love? What is when we talk about love? What does that even mean? You know, if it's, is love something that you can truly fall in, you know, and then you can fall out of? Is that is that what it is? And I thought I would find from real experts on what love is. So I looked up what kids define to be love to see how they define love. So here's some. This is uh, an eight-year-old, Rebecca. She said, love is when my grandmother, she can't bend over to touch her toes or to paint her toenails anymore. So grandfather does it for her all the time. (laughs) That's love. Uh, Billy said, uh, he's four years old, when someone loves you, the way they say your name is different. You just know that your name is safe in their mouth. Isn't that, isn't that sweet? (laughs) Love is what makes you smile when you're tired. That's another one. Uh, Danny, this is very practical. Love is when mommy makes coffee for daddy and she takes a sip before giving it to him (laughs) to make sure it's okay. (laughs) Emily, age eight, says, love is when you kiss all the time. Then when you get tired of kissing, you still want to be together and you talk more. (laughs) My mommy and daddy are like that. They look gross when they kiss. (laughs) Uh, Noel, age seven, says this, love is when you tell a guy you like his shirt and he wears it every day. (laughs) It's pretty good, isn't it? Uh, Elaine says, love is when mommy gives daddy the best piece of chicken. (laughs) Chris said, love is when mommy sees daddy smelly and sweaty and still thinks he is handsome. (laughs) And we'll end here. Marianne said, love is when your puppy licks your face, even after you've left him alone all day. Aww. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I think when we think of love, I, there's a lot of wisdom in some of these definitions. But when we are looking at this chapter, often for us, we call it the love chapter. And is it really just about that? Is it really just about marriage? Is it just about how parents should treat their kids? And, and I really believe what Paul's writing is even a standard of love that's so much greater than even what we just heard. And so much greater than even uh, uh, in, within the context of marriage. Though obviously this applies to marriage, it applies to parenting, it applies to all this. But Paul is really taking a new concept and introducing something that is new. In fact, the Christian community, the, the word that Paul uses in this passage that we're going to look at for love is this word agape. Agape. And agape in Greek kind of takes on this meaning of unconditional love. It's a a love where there's uh, uh, no conditions put to it. It is something that is given freely. And it's different than a brotherly love and it's different than just a romantic love. But this word agape, if you've been around the church for a while in Christianity, maybe you're familiar with it. But in the Greek world, this was really kind of a newer term. And the Christians. And the Christian authors are the ones that really made this just part of the culture. And so Paul, as he's writing this, is creating some new uh, some new definition. Uh, we find it in the other writers of the New Testament as they try to define and understand what does this bigger kind of unconditional God like love look like. In fact, we even find that. God is described as God is agape love. And so his very essence is this agape love. So when we look at this passage here today, this is more than just something we quote at a a, uh, wedding. This is something that is this deep truth about who God is. So we want to look at this. Now, before we look at it, I also want to just talk a little bit of the context of this chapter and where it fits. Because this chapter is in a section of scripture in this letter that goes from chapter 11 through chapter 14. And I have a slide here for you. And I want to show you uh, kind of what's happening in chapters 11 through 14. This is how Paul writes. He starts off in, 11, in chapter 11. He talks about order in Christian worship. He talks about communion. He talks about the role, how men and women react, interact with one another. And then he goes on, and the next step, he says, hey, we looked at last week, is we're all gifted differently, and and so how do we use our gifts and how God has created us in this context? Then, in this chapter, he says, he he introduces the idea of love, and it's a central characteristic of the Christian community. Now, the next chapter, he's going to go back to how we use our spiritual gifts, and then finally, he's going to go back to order in Christian worship. Now, why do I tell you this? Because in this section, which is a separate section in in this uh, letter, he intentionally puts love as a central characteristic of this whole instruction from chapters 11 through 14 intentionally right at the center of it is this whole chapter of, hey, for, for ordering Christian worship to work, for us to interact using our giftedness, though some of you may have gifts that, uh, uh, that seem to be better than others. And, and we all, you know, last week we used the analogy of some of you are the pinky toe, you know, we have, and we can look around and say, well, I'm just a pinky toe. But no, he said, we, no, in the Christian community, all this is important, but none of this works unless love is at the center of how we understand all this. So that's why he's going to go back into Christian order, and then he, or into the gifts, and then into the order of worship. It's intended to be a packaged thought with love at the center of it. So as we look at this here today, know that Paul did not write this for your marriage, though it applies. He wrote it for the people sitting next to you right now. He wrote it for us understanding what it means to be a group of Christians living in a world that maybe doesn't quite understand who Jesus is and what that community looks like. And as we learn this and this becomes central to who we are, this communicates the very nature and heart of God. And we can't have order in our worship. We can't value one another's gifts if love is not the central thought. So that's kind of where this is. So let's look at 1 Corinthians Chapter 13 starting in verse 1. He starts off and says if I speak with the tongues of men and angels but I don't have love I'm become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and I know all mysteries and all knowledge and if I have all faith so as to move mountains but I don't have love I'm nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, if I surrender my body to be burned but don't have love, it profits me nothing. So Paul starts off this, and he's already been talking about our gifts. He's already been talking how we interact with one another. Then he says, listen, that's great. You can be the most effective, the most dynamic speaker. You can um, write the, most, uh, the best books. You can give all your money away. You can do some really great things that in the eyes of the world, they would look at you and say, wow, that's an incredible person. But if the motivation of your heart and what defines you is not this God-like love, he says, you're like a clanging cymbal. You know, symbols. sometimes if you, if you like drums, you, you hear it, you maybe know what they do, but th- we hear these all the time during the worship, but if the cymbal's just alone. Oh, I just woke a couple people up. Welcome back. Good to see you here at Seacoast. My name's Ryan. <laughs> Paul says, hey, I don't care what you've accomplished. If the motivation of your heart, if who you are is inward focus, it's selfish, it's so what other people see you, you are noise. You're just noise. And as you walk around, maybe we can hear you, maybe we can. How many times do we live for Christ, but we're really just kind of living for what people want us to do? Our actions are so that people think we're being spiritual or loving. Maybe we give so that maybe we can get something back. Paul says it's just clanging gong. In fact, in Corinth, they're known for having bronze, uh, actually amplifiers, or uh, kind of amplifiers in their theaters. And so the word here may not be what we think of as the, the symbol for us today, but the bronze was used to amplify sound throughout Corinth. And he says, but if, that, if it's just the bronze, but there's no content to it, it's worthless. If it's just a symbol on itself, if you're just a person without love. it's Kind of annoying. Without love, what's the point? So he gets our attention and then wants to say, okay, now let me define what I'm talking about. Because without this agape love, your Christian community is nothing. It's annoying. So he says, what is love? Then let's understand it. And he goes and gives us a list of things. And and as he goes into this, He's really describing the life of Christ. See, he says love is patient. Love is kind. It's not jealous. Love does not brag. It is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It's not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but it rejoices with truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. See, with love, you can uh, uh, persevere this thing. Love cannot be changed by the outward circumstances. And, And when we look at this, this is really the model of love that Jesus had for you and for me. Can you imagine if Jesus interacted with us, but he didn't have patience with us and where we're at in our journey? Imagine the great patience that God has for us in our process. Are you where you need to be in your faith spiritually? Are you willing to say, hey, I'll stand on the stage and say, everything I do, every Christian should behave exactly the way I do and think the way I think. We're good with that. Who wants to be first? (laughs) Of course, we're in process. Not any of us are perfected. The love that Jesus has for us is great patience. I think of him with his disciples, the love he demonstrated to his disciples, the disciples who would say things that were ridiculous when Jesus said, hey, let's go down to Jerusalem. Thomas, the one we call Doubting Thomas, said, sure, we'll go with you and we'll die with you. (laughs) What kind of faith was that? Don't you think Jesus would look at him and say, don't you understand, Thomas? Don't you understand I can calm the sea? How are you not getting this? But instead of rebuking him, he walks with him. So this love we start with is, modeled by Jesus. We have in John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35, Jesus writes, he says, a new command I give to you that you love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all will know you're my disciples. This is that uh, unconditional love that Jesus has modeled for us is what he's calling us to enter into. Tim Keller said this about the power of love. He says, to be fully known and yet truly love, well, it's a lot like being loved by God. It's what we need more than anything. To be truly loved by God liberates us from pretense. We don't have to kind of put this false view of who we are out there. But being truly loved also humbles us out of our self-righteousness. And it fortifies us for any difficulty that life will throw at us. See, this is that unconditional love that was modeled that's now given to us. So how does this apply in our lives? Let's look at a few things. The first thing is this, how does this love really transform our inner darkness? Now, why do I say transforming our inner darkness? This is um, the famous theologian and philosopher Karl Barth kind of uh, outlined this chapter many, many years ago, and people have used some of his ideas. And one of them is he starts off and says, look, at there's like this inner darkness Paul starts with. And what I mean by that is, as as, Peter wrote in 1 Peter, he said that we've been rescued out of the domain of darkness into Jesus' marvelous light. The, our past, our old selves are kind of, it's like this, this old life that is not who we are anymore. And that's being, what's being transformed. Look at some of the characteristics, the first few. The inner darkness in our life. Patience. Kindness. We're not jealous. Not bragging. Not arrogant. All of these are self-serving and all of these are things That are so natural, are they not? How easy it is to be patient with others. That's one of the hardest things I think there is. But patience with kindness. All of this is kind of, these are the things we're impatient when people aren't behaving the way we think they should behave. We're impatient when our spouse is not reading our minds and and understanding what we want without us saying it, right? We're impatient when our roommates just can't seem to do their dishes and and clean up after themselves. And I'm not saying that we should just say, well, whatever, live any way you want. But our first reaction isn't to see somebody as a work in progress, is it? I think I've learned a lot about patience. I coach baseball. And, and the more years that I've coached, the more patient I become. When I first started coaching, I, could, I knew these eight-year-olds, this was the most important thing that's ever going to happen in their lives. And each game was the biggest deal ever. If we don't take first place and they're eight, what was the trajectory of their lives? How about my coaching career if this game doesn't go right? And so when I first started, and now I've been serving on the board of the Little League for many years, I see young coaches and I'm always just like, chill out, it's fine. You're going to lose the trophy in like two weeks anyway. But, But we get all worked up. But when I first started coaching, everything was a big deal. And when that eight-year-old would field the ball and not understand what base to throw it to, it's like, how could you? (laughs) I mean, I don't understand. Sure, I've been doing this for 30 years, but come on, why don't you get it your first year? (laughs) And it's every year that I've coached, I've learned to be more patient. And the reason I've learned to be more patient is because I've gained more perspective. I've gained perspective. I've won championships We had the trophy. We were the best team. the next year I came back and I thought, man, every parent's going to want me to be their coach. Every kid's going to want to play for me. They'll probably quit if I don't draft them. And you realize next year they don't even remember (laughs) my great championship run. I mean, I even was a privilege, and, and some of you remember, I was a part of a team. We went to the World Series. I mean, Little League paid for us to travel across the country and stay in hotels. That was awesome. It was such a big moment. Some of those kids got cut from their high school team. They're not even playing anymore. They don't have my, my banner up in City Hall anymore. I represented Encinitas, for crying out loud. So you gain perspective, and you realize what really matters. I also have gained perspective. I look at these, student, these students now who play baseball, and I realize they're in process. They're growing. Some of them are going to love the sport. Some are not. So I, I learn, okay, how can we help? I, I've gained perspective. When we look at one another as Christians with patience, we look with perspective. Say, so you know what? I think I've probably made some dumb decisions in my life. I've probably said some things that people would look at and think, how could you ever have said that? I've done some things that I would be ashamed of in front of a group. And so when I look at other brothers and sisters in Christ, instead of saying, why have you not arrived? I can say there, but by the grace of God, go I. I'm in process. And we're all on this journey. And so Paul's saying, if we really want to understand agape, unconditional love, that unconditional love is a love that says to try to see people as Jesus sees them, his precious creation who are in process. And the Holy Spirit's working on all of us and chipping away the rough edges and the, the, the mistakes we make and the decisions we and the way we think, and he's transforming all of it. And that is an amen moment. And so I can look at my brothers and sisters with patience and with kindness. I don't have to boast and say, hey, look at where I am. Look what I've become. Because there's someone else who's going to look at me and say, how are you so far behind? No need to envy where you're at. No need to boast about where I'm at. But to say, Jesus is loving us and transforming us. That's such great news. That's the news that we want to be... A part of so this model that Jesus of love he has for us is also this love that transforms that inner darkness in all of our lives and that's that's something we rejoice in. As he goes on, it kind of turns outward. This is the love that now is how we interact with one another when maybe they don't behave the way we want. Look at how it continues. It says love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Love, oh sorry, love is not easily provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. It's, I'm not just excited about evil that's going on, but I rejo- love rejoices in truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. See, this is our love now that's responding to the outer darkness when there's people even outside the church who are walking in ways apart from Christ that our love now responds to this darkness around us. And notice how it's defined. I like actually the NIV. It writes in ways that I I think the interpretation is a little easier to understand. NIV says, Love does not dishonor others. Love is not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrong. Love does not delight in evil but rejoices in truth. Does that define us? Are we not easily angered? Do we not keep record of wrong? Are we... Not self-seeking? How about dishonoring others? Would you say this defines America right now? Love? Gosh, when I think of the love, this lofty ideal that Paul writes, and I think, does our culture honor or dishonor one another? Is our culture self-seeking or selfless? Is our culture easily angered? No, we got that one down. (laughs) (laughs) It's almost comical, isn't it? (laughs) I feel like now you could say anything and someone's going to be mad. Someone just got mad. (laughs) (laughs) Keeps no records of wrong? Does that define our culture? We're so good at digging up something you did 25 years ago when it, it benefits us. This is a radical kind of love. Could you imagine if the Christian community learned how to play this out among one another? We're not easily angered. We're not easily angered in our, when we're interacting with those who don't believe. We're not provoked. What if this is what people said, man, Christians just, they just seem very different. They don't seem to be all worked up about defending their own rights. They just seem to be about their God who loves them and loves us. What would that do? I think Paul understood what that would do. That's why he's writing it to a community that if you've seen this letter, they've had some issues as a church They've had some things, they, they've been actually looking at each other and they had pride over one another like, well, my gifts are better than yours or I'm more successful than you and they've wrestled with those kind of things. Some have said, well, I understand th- the faith better than you do so I live this way, I can't believe you live that way and they were fighting among each other. Perhaps the first church fight started here in Corinth and Paul's saying, no, I don't, this shouldn't define our communities. How many churches do we know have been started because of fights? How many denominations have come because we didn't learn how to set our own pride aside? Now, there's doctrinal issues. There's times when you say, hey, I don't believe you are in truth, so we're going to split. But do we do that in a way that's with love and care for one another? There are people in this room who are going to offend you at some time by, for something. This is an election year. I guarantee you, you'll be offended by someone in this room. (laughs) How will we interact with one another when we're offended? Will we be defined by love or division? How will we interact with those who don't yet believe when they're offended or they offend you? Will we be defined by love or will we look like everyone else? Paul understood where they were going, where we were going as a culture. He also understood this is probably the most difficult thing that we could ever allow as a part of our lives as true agape love. But this challenge for us in the middle of this section is to be transformed by this, to be defined by that and not this. not be a clanging gong, noisy symbol, but to be this beautiful picture of the most transforming truth in the world. And that is the power of Jesus transforms and changes our life because of his love for you and for me and for everyone that we interact with. That's what we want to define this church. That's why if you're lost, if you're wandering in your faith, we want you to be at home here because we believe this truth will change your life invite the worship team to make their way up as we end because today we're actually going to transition and we're going to move into a time of what we call communion and for us communion is a reminder of God's great love in fact as Paul ends chapter 13 he says the greatest of all these things is love The greatest gift, the greatest characteristic of a Christian community is love. The greatest characteristic we can ascribe to God is love and this unconditional love for you and for me. And so when we take communion, we take this bread that represents the body of Christ, the life that he lived, the death that he died. Broken for you and for me and broken for every single person who has yet to bend a knee to Jesus. Every single person who denies him he was broken for, to cover their sin. And we take the cup, and that's a reminder of the blood that was shed, and a promise he made, a covenant in his blood, where he said, That in that there's a new covenant, a promise he makes for us that can never be broken. That if we receive the forgiveness of Jesus, nothing we can do can undo what has been done on the cross. And so that's what we're going to celebrate in just a moment. And we're going to invite you if you want to go alone, if you want to go as a life group, if you want to go with your family, if you want to take some time to pray, you could take communion at the table, you can bring it back to your seat, however you want to do it. We have a couple songs we do this remembering that this is a story of God's amazing love this is the true good news I want to end again with one more quote by Tim Keller as he talks about this unconditional love and he says this the good news of this justifying faith because of what Jesus has done says that while we are uh, while Christians are still sinning and sinful in Christ in God's sight We are accepted and righteous. We now have a radical new dynamic for personal growth. It means that the more we see our own flaws and sins, the more precious, the more electrifying, the more amazing God's love and grace appears. On the other hand, the more aware we are of God's grace and acceptance in Christ, the more we are able to drop our denials and self-defenses and admit the true dimensions and the character of our sin. The more we understand this unconditional love that Jesus has for us, the more we're set free. And so as we go to the tables, let's remind, remember this great love. Let's be tr- transformed by it. And let's ask that God defines us as a community by that love. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we thank you so much for this morning. I thank you for the reminder, God, that your love is so much greater than our sin. Your patience, your kindness, your goodness towards us is so much more than we could ever earn or deserve. Lord, your good news is so much greater than anything we could invent. So today we want to remember that. And Lord, as we remember that, We ask that that truth would also change us. So would you transform us and change us in this place for your name, for your glory? We give this to you now in Jesus' name, amen.